Hello and welcome back to On the Shoulders of Giants. This is episode three. My name is Pierce, and as you saw in the title, we're going to be going through and looking at John Owen's work on the atonement. Um, we're going to be analyzing three arguments that he makes against universal redemption, which I'll define in a second in his book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. I'm going to going to unpack a couple verses that someone who would argue from that perspective would pull to try to su support their view, and then I'm going to give what we find to be the most biblical explanation of the atonement. But before we do any of that, I want to define universal redemption as as not necessarily the idea that all will be saved in the end, uh, that would be universalism, but rather the view that Christ died for all in an equal sense. It's, it's the view that, that's commonly held by Arminians that that Christ died for everyone, and it's up to us to accept or deny that gift of salvation. So, John Owen is obviously a genius, um, so his, his writing is very hard to understand. So my goal here is to try to simplify his arguments into, into terms that the modern Christian could understand, because I think there's a lot to take away from his work and his book. Um, so, so looking at the first, the first argument he makes in his book, which comes from the covenant of grace. That being, Christ's death covers all who are ratified into the covenant of grace. Right. So the covenant of grace was established, ratified, and confirmed by the death of Christ, and God's promise to his people was sealed on the day of Calvary. Luke 22.20 20 says, And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Hebrews 9.15 says, For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Um, we know that the covenant of grace was not established for all men. We know that it is a particular covenant that is made only for whom God chose to inherit eternal life. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. I believe this passage is crystal clear on the fact that those who are a part of the new covenant are explicitly God's people and will inherit eternal life in the end, right? Verse 34, I believe, says, says, For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. If God forgives their iniquity, and he does not remember their sin, how would they not be saved? So the idea is this, that all who are a part of this new covenant will in the end be brought to glory. Genesis three fourteen through 16 says this, 
The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So we see so we see there are two distinct parties on the earth now, right? The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The first being the reprobate, right? Those who will never inherit the kingdom. And the second being those who are God's people, those who will in the end inherit eternal life. So God has already written out his eternal plan of redemption, and it's set in stone from the third chapter of the first book of the Bible. So think about this. For what purpose would God enter into a covenant of grace with the seed of the serpent, who will ultimately be defeated? Going on, we see that the covenant of works was incomplete. Hebrews 8, 6-7 through 7 says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. The old covenant was not bad, right? It was given by God, but it was ineffective for salvation because it required man to fulfill a condition for themselves. The purpose of the old covenant was to show how, how broken we are, how, how unable we are to come to God on our own. And then the new covenant is effective because God is the only working party. God is the only one who does anything. We are not able on our own to come to Christ. So going on to argument two, uh, this one comes from Romans ten seventeen, which says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. If Christ's atonement is universal, we're going to have to deal with the fact that the knowledge of Christ is not revealed to all people. So if God did not reveal the good news of Jesus to all who are a part of the covenant, then one of these two things will follow. One, people are going to be saved without the knowledge of or faith in Christ. We know that's impossible. We know that's proven false with Scripture. So we can, we can cast that out. Or, or two, this goodwill of God and the sacrifice that Christ made were both in vain, and they're nothing more than a mockery of those who will never hear a word of Christ. It will never do anything to help those men in any way whatsoever, and it won't even serve the justice of God to leave them inexcusable for their sins, because why should someone be blamed for not embracing a benefit for which they have never heard? Why should they be blamed for, for not embracing Christ when they have never heard a word of him? So here's an illustration that John Owen gives in his book. Uh, I think it's brilliant. He says, What wise man would pay a ransom for the delivery of those captives, which he is sure shall never come to the knowledge of any such payment made, and so never be the better for it. Let me ask you this. Is it consistent with the love of God to hold out to hold out the most intense love imaginable, this, this beautiful gift of redemption, never let them know anything of it, and then in the end damn them for not believing in it? I'll let you answer that for yourself, but I sure hope not. So argument three is this. And when I say that John Owen was a genius, uh... <laughs> It also means that he was extremely hard to read at times, and this is one of those times, but I think it's a great argument, so I'm going to do my best to, to simplify it as much as I can, but just try to follow along. It goes something like this. If Christ died for all men, 
then that redemption is either conditional or it's absolute, meaning Christ died and we either have to do something, we have to have faith and believe in him, or he died and everyone for whom he died are saved without exception and there's nothing that we have to do. Now, I think the, the Bible is very clear that we have to have faith and believe in him. So we're going to go with that, that it's conditional. If it is conditional, one of these two things must be true. Christ performed the condition in men absolutely, and all for whom he died are saved. Meaning, Christ died, he required a condition for us to be saved, which is that we have to have faith and believe in him. But Christ performed that condition in us so that we may have faith in him. Or two, he conditionally procured the condition, and if so, two other points arise. One, that condition must be made known to all, going back to argument two. And two, men are either able to or they are unable to perform this condition themselves. And if they are able to perform this condition, scripture's contradicted, right? We know that we can't believe, we can't have faith on our own, apart from God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us this, Romans 3.10-18, Romans 9, countless verses, countless passages talk about this. If they are not able to perform the condition themselves, God has to do it for them, and so he either meant to do it himself, or he didn't. And if he did intend to perform this condition, he failed, right? Because not all men have faith, not all men are saved. If he did not intend to perform this condition, he gave Christ to die for all men upon the condition that they perform a condition, which is impossible for them to do without God, and then declared that he would not help them in any way, shape, or form. Essentially, God gave Christ as a sacrifice, knowing that nobody would ever or could ever be saved. So think about this. If a man promises to give a million dollars to a blind man upon the condition that he opens his eyes and sees, would that promise come from empathy or a mockery of his condition? So, so just, just think about that for a second, because that's what we're left with if, if we go to that extreme. But with all that being said, let's get into some scripture because that's ultimately what matters. We can, we can argue all day, we can, we can use human logic, but in the end, that's not what theology is. So I'm going to give you two verses that, that someone who holds to a view of universal redemption would use to try to refute my position. The first one, and the one that I've heard the most personally, 1 John 2.2, which says this, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And what trips people up is this phrase, whole world, right? Holos cosmos. But we have to realize this. The default interpretation of cosmos is not every human who has ever lived, ever lives now, and ever will live, right? In fact, there's over five different categories of how this word is used throughout the whole New Testament. One example that I like to use is Romans 1.8. We see the same phrase, holos cosmos. It says, First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Do you really want to say that, that Paul is telling the Romans that their faith is being proclaimed to every human to have ever or will ever exist? Paul would never say anything that ridiculous. So point being is, you can't have one default interpretation for, for, this, for this word, or for any word in general, really. So you've got to interpret based on context. So let's go back to the context in 1 John 2. We know that the, that the letter was written to 
believers and believers only. 1 John 5.13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. The R in 1 John 2.2, O-U-R, includes John and the believers he is writing to. 1 John 2.1, he refers to them as his little children. So in order to understand who the whole world is, we need to have a correct understanding of this word propitiation. Now if we go back to Isaiah 53, I believe it's crystal clear on what propitiation is, even though it never explicitly mentions the word. We can take away these things from the passage. Christ is the only righteous one to have ever lived. He is he's holy God and holy man. He, he lived a perfect life. He never broke any command or law, never fell short, and lived every second of every day according to the law of God. God the Father then offered Christ up as a sacrifice to substitute for human sins, and when he was sacrificed, he perfectly and effectively bore the wrath of God for all who were appointed to eternal life. We see in verse 10 that it was the will of the Lord to crush him so that God could justify his people and remain righteous. His death imputed his righteousness onto believers, and in turn, he bore their iniquities. And we know that he only bears the sins of those for whom he was a propitiation. 53 verse 12 says, He bore the sin of many, not all, or not all of the whole world. So if we apply the definition of cosmos that Arminians commonly do, we would have to conclude that everyone ever will be saved based on this definition of of the word propitiation. And so going one step further, Romans 3.25 says of Christ, God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, unbelievers obviously don't have faith. Therefore, his propitiation does not apply to them, only to those who do have faith. So based on all of this that I just threw out there, I believe we can conclude that this phrase holos cosmos in 1 John 2.2 applies to only those who believe. And it's referring to believers throughout the whole world. And so I want to briefly look at the second verse that I chose that I also hear pretty often. And I'm going to try to keep it short for the sake of time. That passage is 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, which says, There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Of course, the word that trips people up here is all, or, or pas, P-A-S. And I'm sorry if you're, if you're a Greek scholar and you're listening. I'm not, so I'm probably butchering these words. But my point is, just like the last verse, you can't have a default or a, a fallback interpretation of this word all. You have to interpret based on context. If you were to just go through and interpret it like Arminians commonly do, you would have to say the same thing for Luke 2.1, which says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. It's the same Greek word there. Now, it is, it is ridiculous to say that Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that a census be taken of every human to have ever lived. Right? That's ridiculous. So, so go through... Matter of fact, I'm going to let you do this on your own. Go through, interpret based on context, and you will find that this word all is not talking about every human ever, but rather but rather those believers from all nations and from all tribes. And so to finish up, I want to give a summary on what the historic reform view 
on the atonement is, um, and I'm going to throw out some scripture too, just while I'm going through it. So first we see Christ came to effectually save sinners, Matthew 121, and not to leave it up to sinners to decide the success of his sacrifice, Romans 9.16. Christ's death absolutely provides salvation for all who believe upon the condition that they have faith in him, Ephesians 2.8. God works in men so that all who are appointed to eternal life have faith in Christ, Acts 13.48. Christ's death serves to reconcile and justify all whom the Father gave him. And Christ consciously, John 10.18, lays down his life for his sheep, John 10.11, and prays for them and for them only, not for the rest of the world, in his high priestly prayer that we see in John 17.9. All for whom Christ died are given a new nature, 2 Corinthians 5.17. They are brought from death to life, John 5.24. And they are given the gift of the Holy Spirit to be regenerated and sanctified. Christ's death covers every sin for whom he died and requires nothing but the condition that God has already promised to fulfill in those whom he chose to inherit eternal life, Ephesians 1, 4-5, based on nothing but the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1, 11. And I'm going to go through, I know I just listed some of these in there probably, but I'm going to go through and, and, and list some of the most explicit, some of the most clear verses on this topic. Of course, I could give a book full of passages that talk about this, but I want to give the most explicit ones really fast. Those being John 17, 9, John 10, 11, and 15, Matthew 1, 21, Isaiah 53, 11, Ezekiel 37, 23, John 10, 27 through 30, John 6:44 and Acts 20:28. 20, and so to really wrap things up, why does this matter, right? Why should I why should I care about this? Well, the atonement is a foremost issue to any and every Christian because without the atonement, we have absolutely nothing. We have no gospel, no salvation, and nothing to look forward to. It is the beginning of every Christian testimony, as Will said in the last episode, Christology could be looked at as the ball bearing in the wheel of a bicycle. And I would argue that the atonement is one of the most important, if not the most important, Christological uh, doctrine. And so you also have to think about how does Christ's death affect you as a Christian, right? Because, because without any, any view or idea of, of the atonement, you'd be left with a bunch of questions. Right? Did he die only for some sins? Do I have to do something to, to bridge the gap between God and man? Do I need to do good works to merit favor in God's eyes or to make myself righteous before God? Um, what do I need in order to be saved? Right. So, so go study scripture. Go, go see what the Bible has to say about this because it's important for you as an individual. And if you go through and exhaust the scriptures on this topic you will be able to see Christ's love with more depth than you ever have before. So that being said, let me leave you with this passage out of 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, 
they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I'll leave you with that, and until next time, all glory to Christ.